I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, if a doctor can prescribe it, it's safe, right? I remember we were on vacation on a little car trip, and I was eating an apple. And then my mom wanted a bite of apple. And that was very strange because she didn't like apple. So I was I was kind of floored, like, what? Like, you, you don't like that. Um, and then she told me that she had a really strong metal taste in her mouth and she needed to get rid of it. This was the mid-2010s. Daniel Aaron was in college at the time. Several months before, his mother had gotten a hip replacement. My mom suffered from chronic pain for years, and um, she finally got her first hip replacement, and it was magical for her. Her pain went away. But then, of course, the other hip, right? We have two hips. And around this time, there was this new device called the metal-on-metal hip, and it basically has a ball and socket made of metal. So traditionally, the materials were usually ceramic. And I think plastic can sometimes be used. The idea of a metal-on-metal hip with both parts being metal was really new. And her doctor told her that it would be great. It's a a smaller surgery because of the way that you can put it in. And the recovery is faster. And so she said, yeah, I want an easier operation. And I want the metal-on-metal hip. After the surgery, she developed uh, a metal taste in her mouth. Uh, She she started having cognitive issues, remembering things and kind of doing basic logic. And she ended up seeing the doctor and they found elevated heavy metals in her blood. And um, she was not the only person. Many people got these hips. More than half a million Americans. And by 2008, a third of hip replacements in the U.S. were the metal-on-metal type. The metal-on-metal hip has this abrasion that kind of grinds away and releases metal ions into the surrounding area. Uh, So that can get into the bloodstream, and it can also, the metals can destroy some of the hip tissue uh, and cause necrosis. And she ended up having to get another hip replacement for her health. She's definitely gotten a lot better, but, you know, it's not like we fully know exactly what what she lost and what uh, she's regained, right? But um, she's definitely improved a lot. And I guess we're left with the question of why was this hip allowed to be put into my mom? And where was FDA? I, and I'm guessing most Americans, assume that if a drug or medical device is available, if my doctor can prescribe it, well, then it's safe and it works. After all, there's a whole government agency, the Food and Drug Administration, to ensure that very thing. Well, this season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. So today, does the regulatory framework for drugs and medical devices in this country ensure safety and access to the best medical treatment? I definitely think that we have a a baked-in social assumption that the foods we eat are safe, that the drugs we take will help us. I'm Daniel G. Aaron, and I am an incoming associate professor of law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law, and I'm also a judicial clerk for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Now, you also formerly were in the Office of General Counsel at the FDA, is that right? Yeah, so I helped with considering various legal risks to FDA policies and actions. I originally wanted to be a doctor, um, but I was on the wards in medical school and I saw patients being addicted to opioids, right? So that's a a drug or a a set of drugs. Um, I saw patients who were eating a lot of unhealthy food. In fact, (laughs) unhealthy food was served in hospitals, which kind of baffles me to this day. Food, right? Another thing that FDA regulates. Let's add on to that medical devices, right? So um, altogether, I started realizing that FDA regulates so many of the consumer products uh, that we put in and on our bodies, even if Many of us don't really think about the agency very much. And I wanted to figure out, 
you know, can we really trust everything that's happening at FDA? Could it be that FDA is kind of faltering? How did we get the FDA? Largely, FDA stemmed from public health disasters. In the late 1800s, there was another opioid crisis. Uh, Morphine and heroin were marketed in a very irresponsible way, uh, leading to addiction and health problems. There was also a lot of concern about food production. So there was this book called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair about the raising and slaughtering of animals and really kind of drove a lot of desire to uh, figure out how we can protect our food supply. Uh, There was the elixir sulfonilamide disaster. Uh, uh, Elixir sulfonilamide was a therapeutic potion, and it it had a a solvent called diethylene glycol that was a poison. And this killed more than 100 people in 15 different states. So this brought concern to the nation's drug supply. um, And also there was a lot of concern about cosmetics, right? So in 1938, that was the birth of FDA, essentially with the passage of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. uh, And this kind of enshrined FDA as a gatekeeper. At first, the FDA focused only on safety. Is it going to poison people? And then Congress added effectiveness to the FDA's role. Does this drug actually do what the company says? And together, that process is known as pre-market review. In 1976, it expanded to include medical devices. But around the same time, an opposing force was building with the election of Ronald Reagan. There was a, a kind of new belief that to cure our ills, we need to deregulate American society. And in fact, government is our enemy. And this was a response to the 1970s stagflation, right? This period of rapid inflation and stagnation in the economy. Um, And so while Reagan was somewhat successful and industry kind of helped drive that, right? By pushing against pre-market review, uh, trying to uh, reduce how stringent it was and allow products to market faster and with less evidence. I think uh, one key moment in history was the HIV epidemic, which started in 1981 because there really was no treatment at that time. And there was pressure on FDA to allow products to be used before they were tested. But it was done in a very careful way where people with HIV were given drugs as part of trials generally. And people who were ineligible for trials uh, would get could get a drug that was not yet approved. However, the HIV movement still created a lot of anti-government sentiment because it was easy to paint FDA as the big bad government who was kind of putting these requirements, these roadblocks to new drugs. And so some corporations used the HIV epidemic to kind of push for lesser standards for the new drugs coming to market. And over the last 30, 40 years, we've seen kind of a pretty broad attack against FDA uh, from multiple angles that's been, in many ways, quite successful. Since the 1970s, Congress and the FDA itself have created more than a dozen programs to get medical advancements into patients faster. The majority of new drugs and devices approved each year, more than two-thirds, take one or more of these expedited pathways— including moving to the front of the line, doing fewer clinical trials, or piggybacking on research for a related product. So yes, this is the norm. Can you give me an example? Again, my mom's hip. So now we get into uh, FDA's device regulatory scheme, which has a pathway called 510K, also called substantial equivalence. So basically, if there is a device that is almost the same as a device before FDA had this pre-market authorization system in 1976, then that device can kind of essentially skip pre-market review. So there were hip replacements before 1976, right? So after 1976, these hip replacement manufacturers just said, well, it's kind of the same. Like, yeah, we, we made some adjustments, but it's the same as the previous one. And then eventually they started changing the materials and FDA is like, yeah, okay, like what's metal going to do, right? But of course, the materials really matter. Um, and and this, this hip had a new design and new materials, right? So it was very shocking in hindsight that this product could get onto the market as substantially equivalent. As reports from people like Daniel Aaron's mom poured in, tasting metal, finding metal in blood tests, experiencing cognitive problems, the FDA ordered the metal-on-metal hips go through the full pre-market review process retroactively. 
but companies making the implants just opted to stop selling them. In 2018, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists looked at a decade's worth of data and found 1.7 million injuries and 83,000 deaths in the U.S. linked to faulty medical devices. FDA officials responded by promising to narrow the 510K pathway for future devices. Now, where drugs are concerned, the most common expedited pathways have names that make their goals pretty clear. Fast track. Priority review, breakthrough therapy, and accelerated approval. All essentially speed up the FDA review process, particularly for new therapies to treat serious conditions. And the problem is FDA has just too much discretion to say, like, we want this, we feel that this could really help, and so we're going to kind of sideline our traditional consumer protection concerns of safety and effectiveness to try to become an, an innovator, if you will. Daniel Aaron points to McKenna, a drug aimed at reducing the risk of preterm birth, which means a baby born at 37 weeks or earlier. McKenna got accelerated approval. Accelerated approval essentially allows FDA not to test a drug clinically or to evaluate a drug clinically, but rather to look at something called surrogate markers. A surrogate marker is like a substitute, right? So instead of looking at whether the patient survives longer, you look at their blood pressure or a lab test value. And and sometimes that's enough, right? If you have a blood pressure lowering medication, you know, maybe it's enough to say this drug lowers blood pressure. But the problem is, without measuring the clinical impact, whether a person's living longer, then you're not really capturing the full impact on health. So a drug that reduces your blood pressure could, on the other hand, cause really negative effects on other bodily systems. So really, you have to look at the overall impact on health to really assess whether a product is safe and effective. You can't just rely on surrogate markers. In the case of McKenna, the FDA's accelerated approval was based on a small trial that showed fewer preterm births among mothers who took it. As a condition of McKenna's accelerated approval, the company was required to do a larger follow-up study confirming those original findings. In McKenna's case, the follow-up study showed no reduction in the risk of preterm birth or improvement in the health of babies born to mothers treated with McKenna. So in April 2023, the FDA withdrew approval of McKenna. I believe it took uh, four years for FDA to finally withdraw the approval. It was not clear whether FDA would be able to successfully withdraw it because that is quite a cumbersome process and uh, has a high risk of litigation, which shows that you know, accelerated approval, to an extent, is very hard to undo. The expedited pathways, the examples you've talked about are drugs getting through expedited pathways to be publicly available. There are some of these pathways that are a little bit more narrow, but they're specifically for individuals who are desperate because they have a rare disease or maybe they're, you know, terminally ill. And they're like, I want to try this experimental drug. I can't get into the clinical trial because I don't qualify. But, you know, It might save my life, it might not, or it might save the life of my child. It's worth it to me. Does that concern you as as much? I think it probably depends on the situation for me. Generally speaking, I do think it can be problematic because even if there is a sense of desperation, a product that's untested can still shorten a short life. You know, if you have three months an untested product could shorten it to a month less, right? So ideally, those people would join a clinical trial. For people who are not eligible for a clinical trial, I do see some value in having access to drugs, but with the caveat that, you know, I just think that there's a lot of potential harm and abuse of desperate people that could occur. So I, I think the consumer protection rationale for FDA is still very much present. But I do want to point out an expedited pathway that has done okay. some good, and that's the emergency use authorization pathway. I mean, obviously, we just came out of COVID, and so having a way to get products to market for a dire emergency sometimes makes sense. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that does seem to be, well, while you've been talking about how worrisome it is to allow products to go through an expedited pathway, we did just come through the pandemic where the COVID vaccines were approved um, more quickly uh, through, the, through the emergency use authorization. And that has actually raised a lot of concern. Can you explain why, why should we not be worried about the COVID vaccine going through those pathways if we should be worried about McKenna or whatever other drug? 
I do think COVID was uniquely dangerous and threatened to collapse our society, at least for a year or two. And so I think that that warranted uh, a lower standard in that particular case. There was a lot of concern among public health experts about the vaccine back in 2020, particularly because President Trump was promising a vaccine by Election Day before the applications were even submitted. And so that led people to wonder, how do you know that the vaccine is going to be effective and safe before applications have been submitted? This has all the appearance of a sham process. And then what ended up happening was pharmaceutical companies stepped in and said, we're not even gonna submit applications for our vaccines until we have some months of data. That was actually very shocking because it was strange to have pharmaceutical companies themselves try to protect pre-market review. But they realized that pre-market review and FDA were essential to having a legitimate product that people trusted. So the vaccine was not ready by election day in the end, but people were very reassured that the products had been tested and that FDA had properly vetted them. So but it, so they didn't go through emergency authorization ultimately? They did, but I, I, it was a more rigorous form of emergency authorization for sure. We had a significant amount of data about the vaccines from clinical trials, right? So, and, and there was a, a significant delay between when the vaccines were created um, to when they were finally authorized. So it was definitely not a, a normal EUA, emergency use authorization. And I think that reassured a lot of people. And it kind of pushed back against the idea that it was just being approved, the vaccines were being approved for election purposes, right? That was the other impact of that. Yeah. Well, it's a win for pre-market author- authorization then, <laughs> it sounds like. It's a win for sort of recognizing that this matters, um, taking the time and having the data. I think that's absolutely right. But but we need to build stronger protections for FDA so that pharmaceutical companies are not the ones defending pre-market review. I mean, grateful for that, for the fact that that aligned with business interests in that moment, but that's not usually the case or not often the case. So we need to have an FDA that's adequately protected and that can make its decisions, you make tough decisions on its own. Right now, the FDA relies heavily on fees that drug and device companies pay to have their products reviewed. Those fee agreements give companies the power to extract certain promises from the FDA about how the process will play out. What you really want to do is insulate FDA from corporate power. So for one, you'd want to give it its own funding and give it a lot more funding. So take away this whole user fee business. Second, I think We could uh, restrict FDA's discretion to approve drugs. Now, of course, there are some moments where there's an emergency, um, but for accelerated approval in particular, when FDA kind of has these these squishy factors, I think it's so easy for FDA to kind of lose and, and erode its own consumer protection role and put products on the market that really aren't tested. And I think that's really dangerous and bad for pharmaceutical innovation. And then I would give FDA more independence from the president. The head of the FDA is a political appointee who can be fired by the president at any moment. Many people have called for that to change. But Daniel Aaron thinks it's more important to give the FDA its own ability to prosecute companies that bring products to market without authorization. Currently, that power rests with the Department of Justice, which is not always eager to do the FDA's bidding. DOJ is largely under the purview of the president with some independence, but so I think to really protect FDA, you'd have to give it its own, more independence, including its own ability to enforce the law. And also that we should limit companies from suing FDA. Companies have filed torrents of litigation in, in different FDA areas to try to disrupt the agency, to drain its resources, and to reverse FDA scientific decisions. And uh, we see that kind of increasingly occurring. Much of this tug-of-war between Congress, drug companies, patients, and public health experts over how the FDA operates boils down to this. Does FDA have an innovation role? And if so, what's the right balance between getting new therapies into the public quickly and making sure those drugs or devices are safe and effective? Expedited pathways through the FDA approval process are almost always framed as pro-innovation, But Daniel Aaron thinks it's the other way around. An innovation is only innovative if it works. If we don't have pre-market review, 
Then we get the flooding of the market with a, a variety of products. Who knows how safe and effective they are? And then it becomes really hard to market new things. By preventing things from being sold irresponsibly, you actually allow new actors to come in and bring in uh, new products, right? So I, I very much think that pre-market review is pro-innovation. But um, we need to actually think about what innovation is. And faster access to untested products is not innovation. In fact, I think that's repeating history, if you will. You get things like my mom's hip, where we don't really have evidence, and you kind of just try it. And, you know, I think, I think we can do so much better than that. Daniel G. Aaron has a medical degree and a law degree. He worked for a time as an attorney at the Food and Drug Administration, and he's now a professor of law at the University of Utah. How do we want the government to balance keeping us safe and giving us access to the latest innovations? I probably never thought about it before, but I wouldn't, I guess I would hope rather than assume <laughs> that any life-saving treatment an American citizen would need, we'd be able to get. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. <laughs> Should the FDA be protecting people against their will? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. My name is Kendra Riley. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a mom of three girls, um, two of which were diagnosed with a very rare disease, metachromatic leukodystrophy, or MLD. So it was probably at the beginning of 2020 when our middle daughter, Olivia, started having trouble walking, um, and the irises of her eyes started vibrating. We knew something was up. Got an MRI, um, got a misdiagnosis in March of 2020. Three days later, we got the correct diagnosis. It's a very progressive disease. It attacks the white matter in the brain, which then attacks the nervous system. So within 90 days of symptom onset, our daughter Olivia lost the ability to walk, and then she lost the ability to talk. Olivia, or Livy, was almost two at the time. The average life expectancy for a child with MLD is six. There was no cure at the time, as far as our doctor knew. And so we looked into what clinical trials were available. And the only one was in Iowa. So we had to make weekly trips during the pandemic back and forth between Phoenix and Iowa to get her these treatments. We also found out it was a genetic condition. So we had to get our other two daughters tested. Thankfully, our oldest daughter, Ava, was unaffected. But our youngest, Kira, who had just been born in January of 2020, also had the same two gene mutations that lead to this disease. We were actually in Iowa for the clinical trial, Libby's clinical trial at the time when we received the news. I mean, it, I, like, you know, as devastated and heartbroken as we were receiving Libby's, you know, double that. So, you know, your whole body shakes, you start to cry and, you know, you just start the grieving process. We assumed that we would have to put her in the same clinical trial that our daughter Olivia was in, which was aimed to stall the disease, not cure it. Uh, thankfully, though, I was talking to an advocacy group called Cure MLD, and the owner told me, do not put your baby in that trial. There's a chance we could save her life through this gene therapy treatment that is available in Italy. And within 24 hours, we were talking to them about our options. Kira was eligible for the treatment in Italy because she hadn't developed any symptoms of MLD. It was too late for Livy. But the Rileys quickly learned there were no clinical trials for it happening in the U.S. They could try to request what's called a compassionate use exemption from the FDA to have a doctor administer the treatment here, but getting that approval could take months. And the doctors in Italy, you know, they're like, there's, there's just not time. We've got to get her here now if we want to make this work and save her life. Were you concerned about, about the fact that it was experimental, that you didn't know what the long-term effects might be, that only a couple dozen kids had ever experienced it, right? Did any yeah. of that worry you, give you pause? Oh, absolutely. Um, but I also saw the cases of these older kids who are now older and doing wonderful who've had the treatment. And so that was our hope, you know, that's, this is literally the only option in the world. So we're going to do it. 
and hope for the best. Kendra Riley put her public relations training to work on a fundraising campaign to come up with the half a million dollars it would cost to relocate the family to Italy for six months and pay for the treatment that would correct the faulty gene in Kira's stem cells. Then slowly but surely, she started, you know, regraining her strength. And, um, you know, here we are today with a very healthy, happy, sassy three-year-old. Wow. So she's, I mean, is she cured? The MLD is gone? Uh, that's, that's their hope. Um, but because it's still so new, I mean, she's only the 32nd child, you know, in the world to have it. They, they can't, they can't call it a cure yet. Um, she's been doing amazing. She's, you know, we have her in gymnastics. Um, she takes swim classes. She's, um, advanced in communication. So she just moved up in preschool. Um, so yeah, we're continually impressed, um, by her and what this treatment can do. What could have made the process better for you? Oh, I mean, having access to, a, you know, to this gene therapy here in the U.S. and not having to uproot our entire family, you know, would have been a lot easier, of course. Kira's older sister, Livy, has had a different outcome. The clinical trial in Iowa did not stall her symptoms. She's now tube-fed and enrolled in hospice at, you know, age four. Um, you know, she loves being around her sisters and being outdoors and watching the birds and playing on her swing set. So she's still very much with it. Um, but yeah, she just can't express herself like a normal child can. She can't walk or control her arms. Her head control is now gone. So we're constantly, you know, having to help her keep her head upright. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, how long do you think you have with her? I mean, I, I go by age six. She's about to turn five, but I mean, she's so happy and with it now, you know, you never can tell. And um, another family here in Arizona who lost their daughter a year after diagnosis, you know, they had a great weekend with their daughter. And then that next week she passed away out of nowhere, just her symptoms radically changed. Um, so you never know what's around the corner and it gives us a lot of perspective and, um, you know, and to enjoy each day as much as we can. Kendra, thank you so much for sharing your family story with us today. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. Now, before the Riley family went to Italy, there was one other option they thought might let Kira receive the treatment here. It's called Right to Try, and it was meant specifically for cases like Kira's, where the situation is too urgent to wait for a compassionate use exemption from the FDA. So the the principle of right to try is that the federal government should not get a veto stamp over a treatment that your doctor thinks is appropriate for you that you want to use when the manufacturer thinks it's appropriate and are willing to provide it to you. This is Naomi Lopez. And I'm the vice president of healthcare policy at the Goldwater Institute. The Goldwater Institute advocates for individual freedom and limited government. The Riley family contacted Naomi Lopez about using right to try for Kira. Because the Goldwater Institute was responsible for getting right-to-try laws passed in 41 states before Congress and President Trump made it national in 2018. As expedited pathways go, it's pretty narrow. When a new treatment enters the FDA approval process, it goes through a basic test where researchers give it to a couple dozen people to make sure the dose is safe. This first phase usually takes a few months, and most drugs clear it pretty easily. Then come the much longer clinical trials to determine if the drug actually works and whether it has harmful side effects. Right to Try lets a patient with a life-threatening illness and no more treatment options try something that's only cleared that first safety test. A physician is recommending the treatment and a manufacturer is willing and able to provide the treatment and the patient wants the treatment, then they can proceed without without FDA approval first. Okay. And so who then is bearing the risk? Who who ensures that it's safe? So there's always risk in any treatment. I mean, even acetaminophen kills hundreds of people every year. So there is no true, uh, there's nothing that's foolproof or completely safe. What the right to try laws do is they require that the patient is is informed of potential outcomes, the risks and the possible benefits. So the, the risk is placed on the physician and the patient's decision making. The bottom line is that it shouldn't be a bureaucrat in Washington deciding what risk you can entail, and quite frankly, um, someone who's never laid hands on the patient. Hmm. Seems like it does put a lot of burden on the patients, though. I mean, here's a desperate individual 
And can we be sure that they are the ones in the best position to really weigh the, the risks and the benefits, you know, in the early stages? Under the right to try laws, no physician is compelled to recommend a treatment. The physician retains that control and authority to recommend or not recommend a treatment. So it is always done under the physician's supervision. But I'd like to point out that there are desperate patients and our lawmakers here in the U.S., have the authority and the responsibility to make sure that we're not forcing patients to travel the globe in search of treatments. And unfortunately, in some cases, they may not be seeking treatments from the most reliable clinics, for example. So why exactly did Right to Try not work for the Rileys, for Kira? It turns out because this treatment had not gone into clinical trials in the U.S. that and, and had not cleared phase one, which is a basic safety, that there was not an option under the original right to try law. So that's when we started to get to work to look at what might be possible to assist those families who needed a unique specialized treatment. This was an individualized treatment created specifically for that individual patient. Because it took Kira's own stem cells, altered the genetic makeup to remove the, the faulty MLD gene, right? Yes, and her genetic material was used in order to create the treatment for her. The current medical innovations right now enable the development of treatments that are based on individual genetic information and other individualized um, health. The clinical trial system, though, was devised more than 50 years ago. That focuses on treatments for large populations rather than individual patients. And so the personalized treatments are undergoing the same clinical trial process for very small, rare disease and ultra-rare disease populations where there's no way that they're going to be able to quickly put together a clinical trial because there just aren't enough patients. And even if they did put together a clinical trial, they may not be able to move it into commercialization because there aren't enough patients that would be, you know, able to utilize it. And so that's when we came up with the right to try for individualized treatments. It does not change or alter the original right to try law, but what it does is it creates an additional pathway. Since right to try for individualized treatments is kind of a mouthful, sometimes advocates just call it right to try 2.0. If it had existed when Kira was first diagnosed with MLD back in 2020, the Rileys could have worked with the Italian doctors to get the treatment in the United States, so long as it took place in a legitimate medical facility and Kira's doctor and the manufacturer of the treatment were on board. The crucial difference between right to try and right to try 2.0 is that with this new pathway, the individualized treatment doesn't have to be in the FDA approval process at all. We want to make sure that it's not illegal to try to save your life. The Riley family was incredibly fortunate in that they were able to raise the money that they needed, hundreds of thousands of dollars, very quickly and relocate to Italy to obtain this treatment to save their daughter. And, you know, it shouldn't have to be that way. It's unclear how many people would manage to qualify for Right to Try 2.0. At this point, only the state of Arizona has enacted it. And we don't even know how many people are taking advantage of the original Right to Try law because the FDA only recently formalized its plan to collect and release that data. But Naomi Lopez is confident that it's helping and will pave the way for more reforms. You know, let's keep in mind that the United States is no longer leading the world in medical innovation in a lot of these areas. Even if those treatments are pioneered in the United States, they're often available elsewhere before the United States. And, you know, we're, we look at a lot of different types of reforms that we could institute, for example, something called reciprocity, where if there's a treatment that's already been approved, like say in Israel or Germany or Japan, a country with a similar and robust process for drug approvals, that the Food and Drug Administration should be compelled within a certain amount of time to grant access to that, unless there's a you know, serious issue. So I think there's a very clear bipartisan support for the FDA's role in certifying that there is some level of patient safety. But, but we've seen every single year uh, bipartisan pushes for innovating and accelerating the clinical trial process. Naomi Lopez is Vice President of Healthcare Policy at the Goldwater Institute. People who choose to take a risk in a right-to-try situation know that they're trying something 
that hasn't checked all the boxes for safety and efficacy. But when a drug or device does take the long road, multiple clinical trials, no FDA-approved shortcuts, something huge is still missing. There are so many prescription medications out there now that we're taking that have primarily been studied in men, and that data has been used to approve this drug to be used for everyone. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. If you're a woman in America, you have at some point in your life taken a medication that was tested only on men when it was deemed safe and effective by the FDA. Ambien is a great example. This is Allison McGregor, a leading expert on sex and gender issues in medicine. She's an ER doctor, a professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville, and author of a book called Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. The issue with Ambien is that it was on the market for over 20 years, so being prescribed primarily to women because women are more likely to be diagnosed with a sleep disorder. And so what was happening is the women who were being prescribed this were waking up the morning after taking it and being impaired, so they felt sleepy. And then they would get in cars, and then they would have an accident. Um, and so as these post-market reports uh, started to build up, the FDA said, oh, we should look at this. And so they took a different formulation of the drug, a shorter acting one, and they gave it to both men and women. And then they stuck them in driving simulation studies. And what happened was the women were crashing the cars. They were acting impaired. So then they took blood samples. And what they found was that women had two times the serum concentration of the drug in their system compared to men. Now, keep in mind, they were both given the same dose at the same time. But after, you know, a certain amount of hours, women had two times of the drug still left in their system. Um, so that's what prompted the FDA to say, okay, women should be prescribed five milligrams and men 10 milligrams. Because it's the first example of the FDA creating sex-specific dosing regimens for a medication. This was in 2010, so pretty recent history. And Dr. McGregor says we really have no idea how many other drugs on the market are acting differently on women. All we know is that reports of adverse effects in women are a major reason drugs end up getting recalled in the U.S. If the medication pipeline is studying men, the only time that we're testing these drugs in women is in real time. But how do researchers get away with only studying men? Well, it started with good intentions. The problem of tighter controls to prevent the distribution of dangerous drugs, such as thalidomide, is a matter of concern to the president at his news conference. It was the early 1960s. He outlines the steps the government plans to take. The United States has the best and the most effective food and drug law of any country in the world. Thalidomide was found to have uh, benefits of nausea, and so we thought, oh, great, this is something that, that will help pregnant women. Um, but then the babies were born with birth defects, and it's called phocomelia, where their arms and legs were deformed. The thalidomide crisis unfolded largely outside the United States because the drug had not been approved by the FDA. But the realization that a drug could cause such serious harm to a fetus prompted Congress to put a requirement into the National Research Act that researchers take extra precautions when including pregnant women in their studies. Now, Dr. McGregor says many researchers just opted to exclude women from experiments entirely rather than jump through the necessary hoops to include them safely. So it started with, okay, we shouldn't test drugs in pregnant women. Um, okay, maybe we shouldn't test drugs in women who are capable of becoming pregnant. So that became, okay, any women with a menstrual uh, cycle, which is going to eliminate. Any woman between the age of like 13 and 55, maybe, is basically off limits for testing then. Exactly. 
There was this concept that women are too complicated because we have a menstrual cycle. So let's find out what's really going on first. And we found out what's really going on in men. And then we just applied that to women. And just assumed that this, it would be the same thing. Like that women's bodies are the same as men's bodies except for the sex organs. It goes back to high school biology class, like that's how long we've been telling this story that's not correct. So, you know, the egg and the sperm come together and then they decide what sex chromosomes you get. XX if you're a female, XY if you're a male. That decides whether you get ovaries or testes. And then that that regulates testosterone or estrogen, which gives you secondary sex characteristics, breast growth and hair growth. And other than that, we were alike in every way. But, you know, women, we have receptors for estrogen in every single organ system and all of our immune cells. So estrogen actually affects our cerebral blood flow, it affects our perception of pain, and it affects our metabolism of drugs. Even our hearts work differently, says Dr. McGregor. The aspirin a day keeps the doctor away rule of thumb came from a study of 20,000 men. And it wasn't until many years later that we realized that that was the case in men. When women take it without already having a need for it, they were more likely to have the side effects of the aspirin, ulcers in the stomach and bleeding. Um, and it was not effective in women in preventing a first-time heart attack. Our hearts get sick differently, too. Heart disease is the number one killer for both men and women. But women are less likely to be diagnosed with heart disease because we have been taught throughout medical school this myth that, you know, there's a man, it's always an illustration of a white man clutching his chest and um, having pain that radiates down his left arm. And so that is what we're looking for. And when women are more likely to present with shortness of breath or nausea or fatigue, fatigue, dizziness, we're not even thinking of doing EKG or referring them to the standard testing. And then there's the QT interval. What is a QT interval? Well, if you were to get an EKG where they put the stickers on you and they do a recording, it's looking at the time that the heart is relaxing. So the heart beats and then it relaxes, and then it beats again. And that relaxing time is very specific, and testosterone decreases the QT interval. It upregulates potassium channels all in the, in the heart cells, which decreases the amount of time it takes to relax. And so why is that significant? Well, many, many medications will increase the QT interval, so increase the time that it takes for your heart to relax just a little bit. That's really important because women are more likely to be prescribed multiple different medications, partly because doctors don't know what to do with them because they weren't taught what's causing their symptoms. So they're constantly just like, oh, here's another medic. Oh, you're anxious? Here's an anti-anxiety medication. Oh, you're, you have a mood disorder? Here's this. Here's, oh, you have chest pain that we don't know why? And this stacks up. And so what happens is the longer the QT interval becomes, the more medications that women take that prolong that QT interval, the more likely they are to have a fatal arrhythmia. So their heart will just stop. There's a patient you talk about in your book, Sex Matters, um, that you call Maria Rosa. Can you tell, would you tell us about her? Yeah, she was a woman who was on multiple different medications. She had some chronic pain issues. She was prescribed medication for anxiety, medication for pain relief. Um, she recently was prescribed steroids to try to help her pain and decrease inflammation. Um, she's, you know, on antidepressants and maybe some sleep drugs like we've discussed. And so each one of those can be prescribed by different physicians, thinking that they are giving her something that might help that one condition. But altogether, if we don't look at all of this, with the knowledge base that this is a female, that this is a woman, that all of these QT prolonging medications could cause a heart attack, you know, as an emergency physician, I see what happens when it all comes together. In this case, Maria Rosa came to the ER again in pain. Dr. McGregor and her team did some tests, found a UTI, a urinary tract infection, and sent the patient home with an antibiotic. 
And then she presented a couple days later with that specific arrhythmia that can happen with a long QT interval. Um, and she, um, she didn't make it. And, you know, it's hard to say what was the exact cause, but looking at her list and realizing that maybe just that one one, that one additional medication that she was prescribed may have pushed her heart over the edge and, um, you know, and, and she lost her life. So when you talk about this with your colleagues, does this surprise people? What's, what's the, I mean, it's certainly shocking to me. I imagine it's surprising to a lot of people who are listening right now, but how well known is it in, the, in, in your industry among the doctors who are treating us? Not known enough. I, I, can, I can confidently say that, but I can also really confidently say that I feel as though it's inevitable that the change will happen. Um, having been having these conversations for, you know, a, uh, almost two decades, in the beginning, it was met with lots of um, defense. Uh, I'm, I'm doing the best I can for my patients. I'm not doing something wrong. And then the research really started to build exponentially. The NIH actually now requires the inclusion of sex as a biological variable in your study design for you to even be considered for funding. That's a major point of change because we are at least recognizing this from a research perspective. So research being done today, um, if you're going to get funding for a study today in America from the NIH, where a lot of funding for medical research comes from, you have to enroll women, you have to somehow guarantee you're not going to affect unborn children, but you also, you have to take into account the way that sex is affecting the outcome. Exactly. And one of the major important elements that we are now realizing is that it's not just about sprinkling some women in a study. It's not even about making sure that we have 50% of women in the study and 50% of men. It's about analyzing the data to determine if there are differences. If you just combine the data from males and combine the data from females, then you're just blending the two together. Does the FDA also require that now? Are we at least no longer getting drugs approved for the market that have never been tested on women? Well, it's interesting because this is an, uh, a place where we need policy. So Congress tells the FDA how much authority they have, and they do not have the authority to mandate that pharmaceutical companies enroll both men and women and analyze it separately. The FDA is tasked with safety versus efficacy. And that's it. And so that is not enough. Um, what they have done, however, to at least be transparent is they have developed a system online called FDA Snapshots, where you can, if you're prescribed the drug, you can go on the website to see, well, who was enrolled? Did they show differences between men and women? Should I um, consider a different dose? Should I talk to my doctor about this? So that, that's been their way to at least uh, address this in some way, but I think that that we need policies with teeth in them. We need to um, have some mandates in order to make a real change. So that dashboard, though, is available to doctors and patients. I guess it's available to the public. What what is the doctor's responsibility? What would you like to see your your colleagues doing um, at, in order to address you know to help help women have better health outcomes? is to consider what is your patient's biological sex and what is their gender identity. Um, and then really to start thinking about how that affects their presentation of whatever illness. For physicians, there's a PubMed search tool that's been validated, and um, you can get to it from sexandgenderhealth.org. What it does is it populates a research um, uh, searching tool with sex and gender terms and women's health. So for instance, if I'm seeing a patient in the emergency department, they're having an asthma exacerbation uh, or they're having hypertensive emergency, I can then go to this search tool and put in hypertensive emergency, asthma attack, and it will then show me all of the newest data, which is usually three, only three to four or five years old, um, that I can utilize right then and there. So what can patients do to ensure that we're having better outcomes? 
I think it's very important for women to really take control, sort of embrace their medical record. Uh, start to get really curious. Make sure that you keep track of your doctors, your specialists, your menstrual cycle, your medication, any dosing changes, you know, a CAT scan that you've had, an ultrasound, an MRI, because these are important things to be able to advocate for yourself when you see a physician. And ask your doctor questions like, this medication that you just prescribed for me, is this has this been tested in women? Should I have a different dose because I am a woman or because of my menstrual cycle or because I'm taking these other medications? Dr. McGregor recently co-founded a website, om-experts.com, to connect women with sex-specific health resources and help them ask the right questions. Your doctor may not know the answer right then and there, and that's okay, because what you're doing is you're influencing your doctor to then look it up. And then that doctor will then know that information for the next time. You have a great story about your mom actually educating the EMTs. Oh my gosh. Yes, exactly. She was having some, some symptoms of either shortness of breath or chest discomfort or nausea. And then the EMS uh, were alerted. And I remember them asking her, like, does it hurt in the middle of your chest? Does it go down to your left arm? Um, and she was like, that's not how women present with heart disease. Um, they present with shortness of breath and nausea and dizziness. And they were like, really? <laughs> so she was teaching them. And I think that's really, really critical because we all have a sphere of influence. Either your influence is in a book club, your influence is you're in a curriculum committee, your influence is informing your doctor of something that you you've just learned. Your influence is your policymaker. There's so many ways in which we can make sure that this information is, is known. And I just encourage everybody to, um, you know, to utilize their sphere of influence whenever possible. Dr. McGregor, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Julie. This was fabulous. Allison McGregor is an ER doctor and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville. Her books include Sex Matters and, most recently, Why Women Aren't Winning at Health But Can, which she co-wrote with Anka Griffiths and Marjorie Jenkins. Top of Mind is a BYU radio production. Today's episode was produced by Elena Beck, Amber Mortensen, and me, with help from Samuel Benson and James Hoops. We had sound design by Brandon Lewis and Spencer Hewitt. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.